Well, today um, I want to zero in on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and particularly verse 13, verses 13 through 18. The challenge with something like this is, uh, by this I mean this paragraph, is uh, Paul had taught these people what we call prophecy or eschatology. Now, I don't know if you're, at least I hope you are familiar with these terms. I doubt very much that prophecy is a new term to you. But perhaps eschatology is a new term to you. Uh, eschatology is one of the branches of theology, if you will, that deals with end times or last things. Eschatology means the theology of end times. That's really what it means. Now, why is that important? Well, let me build a little bit of a case for this. About 27% of the Bible is prophecy. So, you're, you're looking at a very significant portion of God's word that deals with future things. So if God thinks it's important to take 27% of his verbal revelation to us and devote it to prophetic teaching, it's important for us to pay attention to that. So Paul had taught the Thessalonian church, and that's hence the Thessalonian letters, what we're studying, he had taught the Thessalonian church about end times things. We, we have no reason to doubt that every church that he planted, he, he didn't do that. Now, obviously, um, they didn't have textbooks. They didn't have reams of notes. They didn't even have copies of the Bible because it was so expensive. They were to be hand copied and people would read them in public. That was part of their church service. So Paul had just taught them this and taught them again and again and again. And even as I think you can imagine, some of this is really hard to get your arms around and really kind of put together in an integrated, well-thought-through understanding of all that God has planned. What are his end-time plans? And so what Paul is dealing with here in verses 13 through 18 is one event of many events. And the challenge is, where do you put it? Where do you put this? If you put a timeline together. Today, if you don't mind, uh, even if you do mind, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to get into building the elaborate timeline at this point. That's not what I'd rather do. I don't want to do that. Because one, that takes an enormous amount of time, plus it takes a lot of effort to look at other parts of God's word, like the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, etc. And I, that's not the purpose of this class. I mean, we're studying a book. This book is First Thessalonians. But I think it is important that we understand why does God want us to know this. So I want you to look at verse 18. <coughs> And we're going to review what he teaches them here in just a minute. But notice verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Some of your translations might have encourage one another with these words. What's the point? I am, this is Paul speaking, I'm revealing to you truth about the end time. What do you do with that truth? It brings comfort. It brings encouragement to you. Because you serve and worship a God who knows what he's doing, who has a plan, and he has a purpose for everything that is occurring. And so he's, he, Paul, is revealing a shred of truth in this paragraph. And it's a very important thread of truth. But the result is not, well, I know more than you do now. That's not its purpose. I now have a better understanding of the end than you do. No. You're to take this truth and apply it. It's important information. It's important knowledge. But comfort one another. Encourage one another. I did a a series. I've done it about five times now. But I have a series, Why Has God... Uh, given us prophetic scripture. What's its purpose? And um, 
among other things, I, 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 I've concluded that it is to it enables to be comforted and encouraged, uh, but also in the words of Jesus in his uh, teaching on end time stuff in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, he says, be ready and be faithful. In other words, God tells us kind of an outline, a framework of his plan, and what he's saying, now, look, I'm telling you what's going to happen. I want you to be encouraged and comfort one another, but I want you to be ready. So it's always, are you ready? I, I think I've said this to you before, but when I was a little boy, my mother used to say to me when I do something bad, do you want to be doing that when Jesus comes back? You know, and I, I know what she was doing as a reflection, but, you know, in a sense, that is very sound doctrinal truth. Because the Lord Jesus says, you don't know when I'm coming back. The angels don't even know. But be ready. And then the second thing, or the third thing actually, it's the second thing Jesus brings up, is be faithful. I've given you a task to do. Now be faithful in doing it. And so in this particular passage, we have to try to figure out what was disturbing to the Thessalonians. What are they upset about that the words that Paul uses are to bring comfort to them? It must have been something like this. Paul, you taught us about end times things, about prophecy and so on. But what about my mother who had put her faith in you and she died last week? What's going to happen to her? What about my uncle who three months ago, he had put his faith in you and he died? What about him? And so they were concerned about the resurrection, the timing of the resurrection, and how everything fits together into that. So Paul writes, apparently in response to concerns that they had and that he heard perhaps from Timothy. We had talked, if you remember, way back when we started studying Thessalonians. Timothy had been the man, his disciple had gone back and forth between Thessalonica and Corinth, where Paul is. So however he heard about this, this is what he says. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep so that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Now sleep, you all know what sleep is, something we love to do, especially when it you get my age, and it gets to be about 9, 30, 10 o'clock. Those eyelids are getting pretty heavy. It's not talking about the sleep each night. It's a metaphor. And throughout the New Testament, sleep is used as a metaphor for death. The, the believer, the person who's put his or her faith in Christ, when they die, they're asleep, metaphorically speaking, figuratively speaking. And now he explains what he means by that. Are you with me so far? Metaphor, sleep, the sleep of death. So that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. All right, what's the situation? You have a group of believers. They're concerned about relatives, friends, close people in their lives who have died. And Paul says, you're concerned about those who sleep, quote-unquote. But your grief is not like those who have no hope. What does he mean by that? What is hope? Now, this is not a new question. We've talked about that before. What is hope? We obviously didn't hear that question. So what is the object of our hope? To know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, it's focused on a person. And eternal life and heaven in this case. Heaven faith and <laughs> okay, that's all you're saying. Faith. There's something yes, but there's something out there's something that's missing. And it's it's not your fault, but we have to infer this. I want you to think with me about something Jesus said. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. This is, I don't know what that is, but I want it to look like a bullet. So, 
So our, the first point of background to this is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. This is the opening of what we call the Upper Room Discourse, but it's the last block of teaching before Jesus went to the cross. He's got the 12 in the Upper Room, and he's been telling them for about 15 months, I'm going back to the Father, and I'm going to send the Spirit. And obviously, this was disconcerting for these guys, and so he says to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Now verse 3 is the key verse. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So the background to what Paul is teaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is the content of their hope. Jesus is coming back for me. Now you have to put this in, the con in John 14, the context of these guys. They've been with Jesus for three years. He is now the center of everything they're doing. They've, they've given up their businesses. Some are fishermen, some are tax collectors, all those things. And they've been followers of Jesus. And he's preparing them to go out and change the world. But now he's telling them, I'm going away. I'm leaving you guys. And he leaves them with one promise, but I'm coming back for you. Amen. It's a promise. It's not a general I'm coming back, but note it in verses 1 through 3 of John 14. I'm coming back for you. I'm going to the Father. I'm preparing a place for you, and I'm going to come back for you. So the background for the word hope in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, is the content of the promise that Jesus is coming back for us. That is a very profound and central truth of biblical Christianity. What uh, verse is that? Uh, I, I, I was reading from John 14, but in 1 Thessalonians, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. The last part of that verse is those who have no hope. <clears throat> now, are you with me so far? Trying yeah, to build. I have a distraction. Well, that's, I don't want that to occur. Let's get that distraction removed. So I can focus on this. Please. The Bible existed at the time that, that at this time? The at the time of, of Paul's writing uh, to the letter of the Thessalonians? Is that what you mean? Yep. Yeah. You said the Bible John existed, 14. but there were. Very expensive, not everybody had them. And, I, and I, see, I'm just kind of, I feel like a newcomer. I, I, I don't know when the Bible was written. I thought it was written years after. And probably everybody else knows the answer to this question, but. Well, the entire, by the time, uh, let's say when Paul is writing the Thessalonian letters, okay? First of all, you'd have the entire Old Testament, right? All. Those those books of the Old Testament. And that was the work of Daniel. Well, that's one of the many books of the Old but Testament. I mean, didn't he redo the books in captivity? Mm -mm. No. No. Because I thought they put it down. I thought I thought when they were in Babylonian, then that's when they transcribed everything. No. Um, the the why this is because before that it was all just word. No, 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 no. They, those, those books, the books of the Old Testament were written down, and they were, um, I'm trying to codify, but that's not a good word, put together and read in the, in the temple or in the, a little bit later in the synagogues. And that's where you would go to hear the word of God read. I mean, again, in the ancient world, the typical individual person did not have a copy of the scriptures. 
because you know the printing press hadn't been invented yet, and and they were hand copied, so they existed. But if you were a Jewish person, say at the time of Jesus, you would go to the temple in Jerusalem or the synagogues wherever you lived. There was one in Nazareth, there was one in Caesarea, all that. And one of the purposes of that was that's where you would go to hear the law read, hear the word of God read. No, Matt, those, those books had existed from the moment they were written. They were put together and the rabbis used them, and the rabbis read from them uh, to the people. Now, when they came back from the exile, and this we see in Nehemiah 8, Ezra read to the people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, on the western side, excuse me, eastern side of, of the wall in Jerusalem. There was a ma- massive national revival there, but those books had always existed. Now, by the time Paul's writing this, back to Woody's other key question, many, not all, but many of the New Testament books had also been written. And so uh, most of the gospel accounts, not John's gospel, but the other gospel accounts would have been available. Several other of Paul's letters would have been available. The book of James would have been available. And so those, again, you would go to your church, remember they're house churches, and one of the purposes of gathering together in church was to hear the word of God read. And when they would gather together, I think I told you that, they would often gather the entire day of Sunday. The middle of the day, they'd break and have a, a meal called the Agape Feast. But they would spend, and they would spend two hours, sometimes two and a half hours, just reading God's Word. So, does, I mean, does that answer your question? It does. And so, actually, First Thessalonians was written after Paul was speaking to them. That's correct. That's correct. After he had planted the church, that's correct. I mean, this tells what he did. That's, that's correct. That's right. Thank you. Uh, not to, no, that's good. That's an excellent question. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very important question. All right, now, are you, you with me so far? I'm trying to build all this. What had he taught them, and what are they, what are they concerned about? So now the next verse. Two reasons why they should have hope. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now there are two facts there, two theological doctrinal facts in verse 14. Did you catch them? If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the first thing we believe. That is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? We just celebrated that last weekend. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If we believe that is true, we also believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So as Jesus fulfills the promise of John 14, coming with him will be all of those who have died in Christ. When you say in Christ, you're talking about the people who picked up the mark. That's correct. That's correct. <clears throat> all right. Oh, you know, I was going to say it. This last two weeks in my neighborhood, um, some of you might have heard about it on the news, but a family with lives two houses down from us lost their son and died in his sleep at 17. Mm. And it's been a tough situation. Mm. And we've had them over, we've been there for 18 years. The, not always the kids are about the same age as my son, but. They weren't interested in spiritual things. They know we are. Um, and then, then this happened. It's just... Mm. It's one of the number one causes of divorce. <clears throat> I mean, if your child dies, yeah, you've got to have faith. Yeah. We, there's nothing else. There's nothing yeah, else. Yeah. We, we, you know, we sell... God short 
don't understand, I think most people don't understand how important faith is to helping them live their daily lives. Yes. It's like mm -hmm. somebody asking, well, gee, I wish there were a handbook for, for humans. Well, there is. <laughs> Called the Manufacturer's Handbook. Amen. The Bible, our Creator has given it to us. That's what we're studying. I'm just going to say, I believe the Lord texts in all of us, even back then. Had the impossible to text every one of them. Bam. Done. Or Paul would have did his work. Peter would have did his work. It's philosophical, but do you see what I'm saying? There's every one of us. What do you mean text? I'm missing. Yeah. Up here. Touches. Oh, touches? Text. Touches. <clears throat> Feeling in. The reason I'm saying it is I picked up the marker when I was 22, and I thought, man, you know, I mean, I know it's different for everybody, but it's just like, you know, in a tramp, my son said, well, we have a dog, he, we walk, he walks, he said he's talked to him, he said him and his brother Robert, they, they walk their dog too, and he said, I've had many conversations with him, so he said, don't, you know, you don't know, Dad, and, that, you know, but you can't say that to the parents because they don't want to hear that. But, sure. But uh, but he said I don't know because they ne they never somebody got to say it anymore to him so you just don't know. So if the seventeen year old dies, where is he going to go? Mm -hmm. That I mean that's kind of what you're. Well, no, I'm not saying. Kind of right. you know, no, I'm not wondering. I mean, that's their faith. Yeah, yeah, their, their faith, you know, in Jesus. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. You know, so, but. It's, but the parents behind, you know, it's funny, we're, we've been doing a lot of trying to take meals over there and being with them, and that they, they just don't still want to hear anything, anything mm -hmm. about spiritual things, so. In fact, they're probably more against it. Yeah, them yeah, now. right. They, yeah. they have to have a blame, they have to have a release. Yeah, oh yeah. And that's so true. Uh, there's somebody in our church who <coughs> lost their father, and, um, and he was not a believer. Mm. Son had tried to reach out to him for years, mm. and uh, and I said, "Is this something that just happened?" And oh, yeah. He said, "I I expected that I had another ten years with him, mm. well, but he's gone. He's gone." And I can't imagine even for a believer, an unbeliever pastor. I, I tried to walk in his shoes, and I can't do it. I, I can't either. That's yeah, very very hard. Yeah. yeah, very hard. <clears throat> I, before I retired, I had a very good relationship with a woman whose son was 17 and died. He hanged himself. Mm. And she was a, a strong believer. Mm. And she struggled with her faith just tremendously. It was just, mm. it was gut wrenching. Sure. And, you know, it's it been, ultimately it was her faith that got her through it. But it was, it was a major struggle. Yeah. And it would be great. Yeah. And that's totally understandable yeah. why a struggle like that would be natural. Um, yeah, please. Yeah, I've mentioned here my dad is in hospice right now and he's pretty close. Mm. But my aunts and uncles are all worried whether or not we're going to get a priest or a pastor over there to give him his last rites. Mm. And my sister's the only one over there that could conduct that but I don't think this caregiver really wants somebody to come there and we had the conversation you know if someone dies in a car wreck they don't get to the last right they're still as believers going to go there and I'm trying to tell my sister it's okay at this point but those are some of the struggles that we're dealing with yeah, yeah. whether you have whether you have last rites or not is not the determining factor of what you're going to where you're going to end up when you die. Um, but it helps it comforts the family. Well, it 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 can have some value as a as, as a symbolic value, but in terms of the actual destiny of that person when they do uh, draw their last breath, that's not going to determine that. And you you have a good example. You die in a car wreck. Or an airplane accident, or multiple other ways in which some tragedy like that can occur. All right, now let's 
get back to the text, okay? Now, this is what I'm trying to do here is build this carefully step by step here. Because you and I are at a disadvantage in the sense that we don't know all that the Thessalonians were concerned about. But what we do know is what Paul's saying. So that's what I want to concentrate on. All right. First, you have this statement that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that. And like the other side of that coin is the promise that when Jesus returns, those who have died in Christ are going to return with him. Now that is somewhat new teaching. It is in the Old Testament several places, but it is profoundly stated here by Paul as a central element of our hope. Now verse 14, excuse me, verse 15 then builds on this. Now listen carefully to the language. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. What is Paul saying there? This is something that is taught by Jesus. His authority, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, notice the conjunction, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Amen. So let's, now I'm a, no one would ever use the word artist and my name in the same sentence. <laughs> I thought I had it just wouldn't occur. But let's just let's just pretend here that okay, this is planet Earth. Okay, this is the Earth, and here's Jesus. It says in the text that we just read, verse fourteen, uh, verse six. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with the shout. So, and you're going to see in the next verse in the air. So here's Jesus, and we just learned with the saints who have died. Okay? Now, what does that mean with the saints who have died? They're with Jesus. We read in verse 14, we'll bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, this is a technical question. It's a theological question, but it's an important question. The saints who have died are coming back with Jesus. What does that mean? The no, saints who have died are coming back with Jesus. The prophets? No. I don't mean I don't want individual people. I mean what does that mean? All who have died believe. Okay. Here's Joe. Joe's body. We know that's Joe. Is that all that is, makes Joe Joe? You understand my question? He's got personality. He's also he also has a soul. Right? Now, you must understand this or you don't get the point that Paul's making. When you die, what happens to your soul? Goes to be with Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Where's your body go? Into the grave. Or any of the other scenarios you know, that could occur. But so there's that separation. So... When Jesus comes in the air with the saints who have died, what do you have? You have their soul. Am I confusing you, or are you with me? So we don't have a resurrected body. No, that's what he's getting at. Because look at the next verse. Then we who are alive, uh, Lord will descend, and we who are alive, or, uh, sorry, at the end of verse 16, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So these are the saints who have died, their souls. What's rising to be with Jesus? Bodies. Their bodies. So in the air, the body and soul of believers are reunited. 
This is called the resurrection. So, and I, I, I want to go to another passage if we have time before, because it's good night, 23 minutes after 12 already. And it's all your fault. <laughs> Thank you. You're not at all. But you have to understand this, what's in back of this, so you don't understand what he's saying. We, it's we who have died, who have fallen asleep, come with Jesus. Well, to be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord. That means our souls. So as we come back with the Lord Jesus in the air, what does it say? What did we just read? The dead in Christ shall rise first. So here is, let's suppose, go out 40 years from now. That's me. I'm in the grave. The dead in Christ shall rise first. What happened? And my soul joined with my body, and I'm now once again a completed person. A soul, and this sounds philosophical, but a soul-body unit forever. My resurrected, glorified body. So dead in Christ doesn't mean you're dead to Christ. It means dead you're, in Christ. You, it means you're dying with Christ. Yes, right. In so Christ. The two are one. No. The two are one. Well, the soul and the body are re- what ha- death is separations. Okay. Death is separation of the soul and the body, or soul and spirit. I don't want to get into that debate, but the immaterial and material. The resurrection is rejoining of those two, but in the glorified, resurrected, perfect body that God promised us. What this passage we are just studying right now describes when this is going to happen. Okay. Are you with me? Do you understand? Yeah. This, is, this is a profound passage of Scripture. It's just a few verses. But I mean, it's a profound passage. It's telling us that God is making a promise to us. Going back to John 14, I'm going back to the fire, but I'm going to come back for you. Yes. And here he is, he is Paul, is explaining how Jesus is going to do this. And the dead in Christ, all of those from A.D. 33 until whenever Jesus comes back, maybe tomorrow, maybe 10 years from now, but all those who have died and put their faith in Jesus Christ, those dead will rise first. Then verse, 18, uh, verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. Would you please notice, Jesus is not coming back to earth here. This is not his second coming. Did I confuse you, or are you with me? This is not his second coming. This is Jesus coming for his church. And so, the dead in Christ rise first, then we who are alive... Follow. So they're first, then we who are alive are second in this order. Then we, again, meet the Lord in the air, receive our glorified resurrected bodies, and forever we'll be with the Lord. Amen. Jesus said, John 14, verse 3, I'm coming back for you, and where I am, you will be with me forever. Amen. Okay? So Paul is explaining Maybe I should say adding more detail to when and how this is going to happen. That's why this passage is, it's, 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 I've said it about four times now, it's a profound passage of Scripture. Because it's telling us details that we don't see anywhere else in Scripture, but once you understand it, then other parts of Scripture start to make more sense to us. Now I want you to notice one thing in verse 17. <clears throat> and we who are alive... And remain shall be caught up together. That phrase, caught up, in the Latin translations, it's rapturo. What English word do we get from that? Rapture. Rapture. So this is the, one of the central passages in the scriptures on the teaching of the rapture. I mean, I've had people say, well, I don't believe in rapture. I say, you can't say that. It's taught. The question is, or the debate is always the time. When is it going to occur? And that's theologians debate that. Right now, I don't want to get into that. I want to make sure you understand what's being taught here. Then we'll talk about the timing. So it's like, it's a two-stage, um, two-step, if you will, two stages fulfillment of what Jesus said in John 14, verse 3. I am coming back for you. 
And where I am, you will be with me. And what does it say again? And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, raptured, that's what that word means, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So this event, and I hope I don't confuse you here, but I, I need to say it this way. This event that is described in this paragraph is not the same as the second coming of Christ in Revelation 12, uh, Revelation 19, excuse me. They're two separate events. Now, how you put those together is a debate that theologians have, and we'll briefly talk about that in a minute. But the focus of this passage that we are just about done reading, and I want to go back and tie a bunch of loose ends together, is a fantastic promise that Jesus is coming back for us. And he's going to call those who have died in Christ first, and then we who are alive will be caught up to be with them forever to be with the Lord. Now, not to confuse you, but it is very important to do this. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, 52, and 53. Because what the Apostle Paul described in 1 Thessalonians 4 dovetails perfectly with what is in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 53. This is in-depth Bible study this morning, men, so that's what we're doing. Got it. What's that verse again, please? Verse 51 through 53 of 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is the longest passage in the Bible on the resurrection. But I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality. Now that's doctrinal language. Do you understand what he's saying? Is there a word in verse 52 that allows you to connect to verse First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, verse thirteen through eighteen. Trumpet. Remember, there are three things you will hear: a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet. It's the last thing. So Paul is saying the same thing here. What he's describing in First Corinthians fifteen is the resurrection body. So when do we get our glorified, resurrected bodies? First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 explains to us when that occurs. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. I have an ophthalmologist friend who tells me a twinkling of an eye is a jiffy. You know what it is. That's helpful, but a jiffy is one one-hundredth of a second. Huh? A jiffy is a real measure of time. One one hundredth of a second. If you're saying that, you're using a little bit of hyperbole there. <laughs> but uh, this is Bible study. I'm try, I'm, what I'm wanting you to put together is the promise of John 14, verse 3 with the fulfillment in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, with the explanation of 1 Corinthians 15, telling us what happens. And kind of the point that Woody made is, none of this was all written at the same time. We That's correct. Now That's correct. Because God had the eternal perspective. That's right. That's right. The Holy Spirit inspired all this. And that's what Bible study is. It's tying all this material of God's word together into a coherent whole. So, we're not done with this by any stretch, but... Can you, can you put to rest the speculation that mankind has put on the second coming, quote, 
as defined by you, uh, and also then the second coming to Earth. And when that would occur? Um, That's after the 40 years. Well, no. no. Would it be all right if I don't get into that detail? I mean, this is a bunny trail that is massive, Fred. Yeah, I just wanted to but go to that one there, point that, there. that Christ answered, uh, Jim. So I'm, you know, the two you, events here that we are discussing is the rapture right. and the second coming. Now, we just studied 1 Thess 4, the rapture, and the central place you start talking about that is what we've just studied, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. The central passage on the second coming is Revelation 19. Okay? Now, the issue among, uh, the issue in doctrine is when does this occur in relationship to this? There's no doubt that the rapture occurs before the second coming. There's no doubt about that. It's just how much before. And that's a debate right now because you've got to construct a timeline. You have to look at Daniel. I mean, I don't want to particularly do that right now. But you notice that we read that already in the air, in the cloud. Okay? You read it. Whereas here, it's very clear. Jesus is, and it's very, when you go to Revelation 19, Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives. He goes into the temple in Jerusalem, marches north to Jezreel Valley, defeats Antichrist, and sets up his kingdom. They're not the same event. The purpose of the rapture is that those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ receive their glorified, resurrected bodies. That's the purpose of this. This is, the purpose of this, is the Lord Jesus is going to return to earth, vanquish his enemies, defeat, and this is what's in that material in Revelation, defeat his enemies at Armageddon and set up his kingdom. They're not the same event. They have two different purposes. But for now, as far as Gump said, that's all I have to say about that. This for is now. I, I just, some of this. Uh, sure it is. I, I had no idea that the Bible misunderstanding about the second coming of Christ, uh, from what I hear, a lot of people think that's going to be the rapture, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, you're, you know, this, like I said, is new information for me. Good. It's just, there, there is a difference in the timing is, when does it occur, and how much time is it between the two events, that's a major issue, but for us right now, I've probably put so much on some of you, you're absolutely lost now, you're swimming, but... It's, it's an important truth because of what verse 18 says. This is to comfort us. God's going to keep his promise. Jesus said, I'm going back to the Father, but I'm going to come back for you. I promise you this. And then the, the, the wonder, the, the wonder of God's promise that the, the body you have now that is getting older, it's deteriorating, it's subject to all of the things that are a part of a, of a, of a, a fallen world, will be replaced by a glorified, resurrected body. Another way of saying, this is exactly how the scriptures put it, the body that Jesus has is the body you will have. Now, I didn't say you're going to become God, I said the body Jesus has, a resurrected body, is the body you will have. I hope you understand. I don't mean identical to Jesus where you're going to look like. That's not what I mean. I mean the body, the resurrected body. That's the promise God's made. It's, it's spoken of as Jesus is the first fruit of all those who will be resurrected. It's a, it's a, just, it's a, it's a wondrous truth. It's, it's one we need to meditate on and think about and, and do what Paul says here. Comfort one another with this. Jesus made a promise to me. He's coming back. And he's going to give me a new, glorified, resurrected body. And forever I will be with him. Jesus' resurrected body still had a hole in from the Spirit? 
Say, I'm sorry, say it again. They could still have a hole in it from the spear? Matt, why did you have <laughs> I just watched it uh, Sunday night. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching the Bible on Sunday night. And, you know, you see him. Well, he had to say, he had to answer Thomas. Yeah, I, I, I think the... Um, the scars, the scars of, the scars of his suffering and so on, perhaps will be there. It'll be a part of that, but it's. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. Yeah. Well, the question I have: Did he take on those scars or recreate those scars to satisfy? I, I don't think I don't think I can answer that question. Yeah. I just don't know. I don't know how to think about that. Uh, it would seem as if um, that Jesus' resurrected body bore the scars of his suffering, but the suffering itself is gone. The debilitating nature of the suffering is gone. It's a very interesting um, problem. People say on this particular date in the future, and we've seen it recently, <clears throat> Christ is coming back. And Christ answers that question very, very clearly when he's asked. Don't set dates. And somebody so, sets a date, don't listen to them. So if we hear around this table, we hear that announced, that this is definitely... Don't listen to them. They are not speaking to the authority of God's word. Somebody sets a date, don't listen to them. False prophet? I would say that's a false prophet. I mean that. Don't listen to them. Somebody sets a date. They, remember what Jesus says in Matthew 24. No one knows the hour or the day of my return. So what Jesus says there should settle it. When somebody comes along and says... You know, in 1844, a man by the name of William Miller said, October the 29th, 1844, Jesus is coming back. October the 29th, 1844 occurred, and Jesus did not come back. Ah, made a mistake. My calculations were off by one year. It's October the 29th, 1845. So they waited another 365 days, and guess what? He did not come back that day. And that's the same guy Joe Smith was listening to. Well, yeah, that's, I'm just using that as an historical example, but... I mean, when somebody gets, when someone gets specific like that, they're not speaking with the authority of God. Don't listen to them. Turn your radio off, your television off, or throw the book away, or put it in recycle, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you've solved one, a few problems, but you've also created a few. <laughs> Bible study does that. Yeah, yeah. Can souls recognize each other? Mm. Mm. What we hear a lot about is when, when a, a lady dies, and oh, isn't it so wonderful? She's going to be able to see her mm-hmm. husband again yeah. because he knew, knew the Lord. Well, well, they recognize. Boy, Daryl, I, I, you know, I, I, the Lord, yeah, it. it I, I don't know if we have enough information from God's Word to, uh, to reach a conclusion like that. Probably the only the only place is, and it's in Luke. And I forget the exact chapter, but you have the, the 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 poor man Lazarus and the rich man. They both die, and the poor man is in the it's the phrase that you he's in the bosom of Abraham, and there is a recognition of others, including the the, the rich man and so on. And they're able to talk. I don't, I don't know how we should understand that. But it seems to me as if even as, as souls or soul spirits, there is that capacity to recognize one another. Well, yeah. Well, I, it, it's not like it's angel. Uh, see, we're in an area where the scriptures just have not spoken very much about this. So we almost try to make an educated guess, but it seems reasonable to conclude that um, even in the immaterial part of Daryl Lynn, 
Daryl, Lynn's immaterial part were able to recognize. Other, I, I just that seems reasonable to me, but it's it's incomplete until we receive our glorified resurrected bodies at the event that Paul's talking about here. Oh. But it's hard. I mean, you know, I often have thought about that. I, I, I think I told you that one time with my daughter when she was real little, talking about heaven, and she just couldn't get it. She just, this eternal idea, you know, well, when do I come back? No, honey, when Jesus comes back, we go to be with him forever. Okay, and she was, and she said, but then when do we come back? What? No, we don't come back. I mean, that's a hard, for a little girl, it's three or four, that's really hard. It's hard for me, and I'm 68. I mean, it's just, we're talking about things I think the Lord has chosen not to reveal a great deal of detail about this. Because we don't have a category for understanding it. This is finite. Well, it's, we're, we're finite. We're finite. Finite means limited. And we don't have a capacity to really understand the eternal. And so I think the Lord just chose not to reveal a great deal of detail about it. But Coming back to this, <laughs> coming back to this passage is, you know, we're down now to three minutes, but coming back to this passage, what we see here is a tremendous promise. And I want to go through this again. What about my grandmother who died in 1984? She was a strong believer. Will I see her again? Yes. How is Jesus going to... Well, the dead in Christ will rise first. So if I'm alive when Jesus comes back for his church, my grandmother will go to be with Jesus before I do in terms of getting her glorified, resurrected body. And then we who are alive are caught up with the rest in the air, in the cloud. But the promises will forever be with the Lord, always be with the Lord. And again, the instruction of this, and not the instruction, the purpose of this instruction is verse 18. Comfort one another with this. This is a great promise. And I want to conclude and then make a couple of other thoughts before we finish today. Titus 2.13 speaks of the blessed hope of the church. Titus 2.13, the blessed hope of the church, is this passage right here. That Christ is coming back for us. 2.13? 2.13, yes. That Christ is coming back for us. And he's going to fulfill that promise that where he is, we're going to be with him forever. Amen. Amen. And in the, you see, until you and I are resurrected, and that is, until you and I receive our glorified resurrected bodies, the fullness of the redemptive program of God isn't completed. The fullness of the God's redemptive program is you and I receiving a glorified resurrected body. And some of us will never die. They'll just get raptured. That's right. If you're alive when, when the event, the Lord appears, and the shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet, if you are alive when that occurs, you will be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. You will not die. You will immediately be translated, as it's sometimes said. Immediately receive your glorified, resurrected body. All right. So, why is this in the Bible? Well, it's a couple of things. It fulfills the promise of John fourteen three. It also tells us when the material in First Corinthians fifteen fifty one through fifty three. When does that occur? Where the perishable puts on imperishable. As we you know, as we say those. Curious words, but very important words. It occurs at this event, the rapture. And, you know, somebody said, why don't believe in the rapture? Your answer is you can't say that. It's taught. The issue is when does it occur? That's where the controversy is. But you can't say I don't believe in the rapture because <laughs> that's what's being taught here. And it's a, it's a wondrous truth. It's also a comfort for those who are enduring tremendous suffering. For those who have experienced, as Tom's friend, family uh, in his neighborhood, experience a tremendous loss of someone like that, a 17-year-old. If he's, a, if, that, if he's a believer, that promise is that he will receive 
that promised glorified resurrected body from the Lord Jesus when he returns for us. Um, and that's, it's a comfort beyond words. And it is, I think it's proper for us, because that's the context in which it's proper for us to be encouraged by that. My, if your wife or your husband, your, your wife precedes you in death, or your child, will you see that? Yes. That's a promise. You can hold on to that because of what Jesus, uh, excuse me, what Paul says here. And it's an important promise for us to latch on to. It's an important promise for people who are going through suffering or hardship. Things are not always going to be this way. There's coming a day, the shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, when 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53 will be fulfilled in your life. All right? Any final thoughts or questions? I have one thing. Uh, Absolutely. A few years ago, I lost a daughter. She was in her 30s. And uh, as far as I know, she was not a believer. Uh, but uh, and, when I, and when she passed away, I, I found out from uh, from some other people that she was, uh, they, were, they were quoting some verses to her. Mm. Even though I'm not, I don't have any certainty that she became a believer, I choose to believe that that possibility exists. Of course. Absolutely. Maybe just before she took Absolutely. breath, Absolutely. that she became a believer. So Absolutely. That's given me some comfort. Absolutely. Uh, well, and that, you know, Woody, that's very valid. That's a very valid uh, sentiment and hope to have. You do not know, as long as a person is drawing breath, there's the hope that they'll put their face. I told, didn't I tell you about my friend that he just, he would, he just refused to trust Christ until the last hours of his life. Chuck embraced. Yeah. You, know, you never, yes, you, you don't know those. Yeah, I mean, it's you don't know what God does in those last moments of a person's life. Okay, now we went. It's I've got to quit here, but we went through some heavy stuff today. I mean, this is heavy doctrinal stuff. But as you saw, I hope from verse eighteen, there's a very, very real practical element to this, isn't it? Comfort one another. It's hope. And hope is what people cannot live without hope. This is one of the most important dimensions of a content of hope that we have as believers. Jesus said he's going to come back for me. First Thessalonians 4 tells you, when are you going to do it? It's kind of an exciting thing to think about. I don't think I've ever, in the last seven years, have got it the way you just described it today, so I think these guys are lucky because this is the simplest way... And I think you never explained it to me. Good. And Brian always has all those other questions, you know? Yeah. So I don't know if I just got lost in it, but I think that this explains the rapture better than it ever has to be. Or, you know. Well, praise the Lord. It's a, it's a grand truth. It, it's a grand truth for us to hold on to. I've got to pray because I've got to go and you got to go. And I hate to end it with her, but it's, it's hurried. We've got to do it. Father, we're thankful for this passage of Scripture that your Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write. And with the authority, as he said, I speak with the authority of the Lord on this. He is declaring uh, revealed truth, and it's extremely important for us. It's how Jesus is going to fulfill that promise. I'm going to come back for you. It's what he promised in John 14, 3. And Lord, it's, uh, it's kind of profound for us to think through something like this, but yet it's real, it's true, and the result is it's to cause us to be comforted, to be encouraged, that, uh, Lord, the destiny we have as your children by faith in Jesus Christ is a magnificent destiny. We're going to be with you forever in our glorified, resurrected bodies, in the pains in our joints, the the things that are part of just getting older in a body that begins to deteriorate, all of that is going to be gone as we uh, spend eternity with you uh, and that promise that you've made to us. Lord, this is one of the major contents of our hope, the blessed hope of the church, that Jesus is coming back for us. We trust you with that. That's a promise we're going to hold on to. 
and help us to find encouragement and comfort in it and through it, and even to perhaps use it in other people's lives who need a source of comfort, need encouragement. To put their faith in Jesus means they are at the center of what he's doing. He's coming back for us, and that's a grand promise. We hold on to that, and we look forward to your fulfilling that promise in each one of our lives. As we go through the rest of our day now, dear Lord, help us to represent you well. Help us to be good stewards of all you ask us to do. We do this and ask this in the name, the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. See you next week.